uh, we're going to be discussing tonight uh, one of the early G'dayli HaChasidus, Gabnochem Chernobylach. The um, the life of Rabnochem Chernobyl is of more than just passing interest to uh, our family because he is the first of the Tversky's and uh, it is um, his legacy essentially which has uh, deeply influenced uh, all of the um, the um, Hasidic leaders who have come from the Chernobyl dynasty. Uh, Reb Nachum carries a, a distinction which derives of the fact that he was uh, a disciple of the Baal Shem HaKodesh and uh, that he was amongst the older disciples of the Baal Shem's successor, the um, great Magid of Mizrich. In uh, Reb Nachum's writings, we find uh, numerous mention of Shamati Mimeri, meaning I heard from my uh, my mentor, my teacher, when that refers to the Baal Shem HaKodesh. And we also find that uh, he makes that same reference many times when he has reference to his teacher, the Magid of Mizrich. Uh, Reb Nachum is um, considered uh, one of the, um, the foundations for the what we know about what the Baal Shem HaKodesh taught you will remember that in, in one of our earlier sessions we discussed the um, the Teldus who was beyond the Nishar of the Doubt the uh, most prominent of all the scribes who recorded the Teldus of the Baal Shem um, next to the Teldus we have the uh, Degel who is um, the Baal Shem's grandson and um, Somewhere, whether it's second or third in uh, in order of consequence, is Reb Nachum's Ma'iri Naim, which is the uh, the name of his his commentary on Torah and, uh, and uh, a wide spectrum of of, uh, of topics of Hashkafa. The um, uh, a, a work which is uh, considered the uh, amongst the the top classics of the earliest Hasidic commentary. Nachum was born in, um, in the year Tav Tzadik, which is uh, corresponds to the common era 1730 in uh, Valina Gabania, which is uh, someplace in Russia. In a city called Narinsk, it's it's a Valin was very close to Lithuania, and uh, he came from a very distinguished family—a family of scholars, a family of, uh, of people of, of great 
spiritual stature. His father's name was Reb Tzvi. Um, and uh, Reb Tzvi, in turn, was the son of someone who was called Reb Nachum Goyen. Reb Nachum Goyen um, left uh, a, um, a number of children, the youngest of whom was also called Reb Nachum, in that he was born shortly after his father's death. This Reb Nachum Goyen, uh, one of Reb Nachum Goyen's children, was uh, said to be the one who learned the writings, the hidden writings of Rebodim Baal Shem Tov with, uh, with the Baal Shem HaKodesh. The, uh, these Kabbalistic writings which really launched the, um, the, the life and, and the, um, uh, the, the service of uh, the Baal Shem Tov. And um, Reb Nachum Chernobyl himself uh, became was, was orphaned at a very young age, and he grew up under the uh, tutelage of this uncle of his, Reb Nachum, uh, who uh, took him under his wing. His early childhood was one of great poverty and deprivation, uh, and there are some some anecdotes of, of interest about. About, about that period in his life, uh, but most importantly, he was uh, he was a, a prodigy, and his uncle Reb Nachum recognized in him that this uh, that this youngster had uh, the capacity, the potential for greatness, and sent him off to one of the great yeshivas of Lithuania to learn. Uh, nonetheless, despite the fact that he excelled in in his uh, studies of uh, what we call nigla, which are the uh, all of the uh, the studies of halacha, the study of gemara, mishnah, um, all of uh, all of those writings which are, are crucial to um, to know the the length and breadth of Teira and in, in, uh, in how to apply it to our daily lives. Uh, he was uh, he was very restless. He was um, searching for something that uh, that would slake his uh, his his thirst, and he eventually became deeply involved in the Kisvei Ha'ari and the writings of, of the Ari Hakodesh, which were the writings of the Kabbalah. Um, in the course of which, he also lived a, a very ascetic. Uh, existence in which he uh, denied himself um, uh, all kinds of material pleasures and uh, uh, engaged in, in practices which later came under the, uh, the heavy criticism of the Baal Shem HaKodesh, that these were not helpful or constructive. Uh, these uh, kind of of um, uh, punitive, these uh, self, these uh, exercises of self-flagellation. Um, but even as uh, he became ever more deeply involved in the study of Kabbalah, and his life and its practices reflected his involvement in the Kabbalah, he recognized that there was something that just wasn't falling into place. And when the news began to um, come around about the Baal Shem Tov 
and the fact that uh, this was someone who was uh, conversant in both uh, the uh, Nigla and Nistar, that, uh, that both worlds were open to him, that he was uh, a, a person who uh, had attracted to him not only the um, a very wide following amongst the, uh, the conventional uh, simple folk, but a very strong cadre of, of uh, of great scholars, he uh, found himself drawn to to um, kind of stake out this Baal uh, Shem Tov. And so he um, he came to the Baal Shem HaKadosh, the Baal Shem Tov, in his, uh, in his great vision, sensed uh, that Reb Nachum was traveling that he was making this journey to to visit and, and to see whether or not there was something for him in in Hasidus, and um, the Baal Shem Tov instructed his household to prepare a very special Shabbos in honor of a very distinguished guest who was going to be visiting with them. Um, Reb Nachum arrived shortly before Shabbos. And um, when the uh, Baal Shem Tov saw him, he immediately turned to his Rebetzin, and he said to him, keep an eye on him, and be very cautious, because this young man is a thief. The um, Reb Nachum's um, welcome by the Baal Shem Tov was, was less than from the Baal Shem Tov himself was, was less than uh, than warm he found himself somehow distanced by the Baal Shem HaKadosh and uh, his his hunger and his frustration were, were um, overwhelming he spent uh, the Shabbos um, recognizing that, uh, that he had to somehow um, be misspelled that he had to uh, importune the Almighty to intervene on his behalf that the Moshevim might might uh, draw him into his uh, his uh, tutelage and um, the um, after Shabbos the Rebbetzin who had been keeping a careful eye on this young man and somehow in anticipation that she might catch him at uh, stealing something, recognized, as women usually do, that uh, they know people well. And she, uh, with exasperation, confronted the Baal Shem Tov and said to him, how can you say this young man is a thief? I've been watching Baal Shabbos. He is a God-fearing young man with an exemplar character. And uh, to which the Baal Shem Tov said, well, you didn't ask me what it was that I thought he would steal. He said, Rav Nochum is a person of such uh, such greatness that he threatens to take all of Ulam Haba, all of, all of the world to come for himself. He said, uh, he's going to leave everybody else very little. So he said, so that was, that was the uh, interpretation of my remarks. In any event, uh, the um, entreaties of of Reb Nachum, that the Baal Shem Tov um, 
uh, welcomed him into his sphere of influence, uh, did bear fruit, and uh, the uh, Reb Nachum became a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. The fact is, is that uh, to the best of anyone's knowledge, Reb Nachum did not visit the Baal Shem Tov more than twice during his life. But in these uh, two times, he drank very, very uh, intensely of the, the elixir of Hasidus and uh, became one of the major scribes of, of Hasidus. Um, Nachum married uh, the daughter of a very illustrious lineage. Her name was Sarah. She was a, uh, of the line of the Mavoy Hasharim, Rabnosanata, and uh, a line which traced its uh, its descent from uh, Rashi, who in turn was known to be have traced his descent from David Hamela, from King David. Um, she was a, a woman of great measure and uh, and shared in his life of. Um, of uh, not uh, allowing uh, for for uh, the indulgence of any affluence, they lived uh, throughout their lives. They lived uh, in great poverty, despite the fact that enormous sums of money passed through the hands of Rebnachum because he was constantly given money, um, uh, either as pidyonis with with the kritlach as. Uh, I think we may have spoken about the fact that it was coming that when you went to a tzaddik with a request that uh, you wrote these requests down on a piece of paper and you usually gave that in with some charity money which is called a pidyon. Um, but uh, it, and everyone knew that Reb Nochem took virtually nothing for himself and that it was all passed down immediately to, uh, uh, to charity. Uh, the Reb Nachum's poverty was uh, uh, was of um, kind of legendary proportions. The story is related that uh, the, the family went to Haif. Rabbi's court went deeply into debt, and um, a very well-to-do chassid arrived and informed the Gabai, the attendant to the, to the Rebbe, that uh, he was going to give the Rebbe a pidgin of some 300 ruble, which was a very, very handsome sum of money. The Gabai immediately sat down, made a list of, of all of the debts which were owed, and of all of the needs of the house, and uh, realized that this 300 uh, ruble would be enough to cover a, a fraction of, the, of, of what was owed. But he made this list and prioritized it so that at the conclusion of the day he could go in and inform the Rebbe what was um, to be covered by this uh, the amount of money that had come in. Um, there were uh, long lines of uh, people who had come to seek the Rebbe's uh, Rabbi's brachas, the Rabbi's council, his tefillos, and um, after the uh, Hasidim finished, the Rabbi went into to Davin Marav, and after Marav, he 
uh, made it clear that he doesn't want to be bothered by anyone. So they left him alone, and after after he uh, concluded this this period of solitude, the uh, Gabai finally felt that now he could go in with his list, and he went in with his list, and he said to the Rebbe, here's... Uh, here is the, um, the list I know. I happen to be privy to the fact that uh, this and this chassid came in today and that he gave you 300 ruble of money. So the Rebbe said, I don't have 300 ruble of money. So the Gabbai, who knew that the Rebbe usually keeps the money in a, in a drawer of a little desk that he had, went, went over to the and opened it up and there were no 300 rubles there. So he said to the Rebbe, well, what happened to the 300 rubles? He said, well, you know, there was a fellow here today and uh, he was very needy. So I I just gave him the money. So he began to tear his hair out of the cabinet and to scream and carry on about how, how he could do this. And the Rebbe said, um, you know that period of time that I spent alone after Marav, he said, was because I was trying to figure out what to do with, with this money. So he said, and I dispatched with it just before you came in to give it over to this fellow. So he said, well, why did you hit the, why, what was the, the solitude all about? So he said, I'll tell you what it was all, what it was all about. He said, when this fellow left and I saw how much money he had left me, I said to myself, this is great. I'm going to be able to pay off some of my debts. I'm going to be able to, to assume some sort of respectability. He said, and then, he said, I began to say to myself, Nachum, um, the Almighty has appointed you a steward over many people's fortunes. And if this money has come into your into your possession, uh, perhaps it's to be transferred someplace. So I immediately thought about this fellow who had come in to tell me about his needs. His needs were the following. One, he hasn't paid uh, for his children's malamid. fellow teaches them Torah. Uh, for most of the year, and the Malamed has indicated that if he doesn't pay up, that he's leaving. In Europe, uh, people lived in fairly remote villages, many people. If um, you wanted your children to have an education, you had to hire a private Malamed. If the Malamed left town, you were you were uh, sitting there in a in a some sort of godforsaken village with no one to, to educate your children. So this was not a simple issue of the fact if he wouldn't do it, so there, there was some sort of other option available. He said that his fellow's children were not going to study Torah. What's more, he told me that he owed the Purits, who was the feudal landowner there who owned all of the all of the different concessions, that he owed him his... Um, his lease money for uh, running the, the um, Arandar, and um, he would not only be dispossessed if he didn't pay it, but he would, would be taken prisoner and held hostage. Finally, he indicated to me that 
he has a daughter who is who needs to be married off and has no funds to do so. And I asked him how much money all of these things would take, and it came to 300 ruble. At the time, I was helpless. So he said, but when this fellow came in and deposited that money in it, he said, and it was just the exact same amount of money, I said to myself, certainly the Almighty has um, granted me as custodian over here an opportunity to fulfill three mitzvahs at once. I can fulfill the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, I can fulfill the mitzvah of Hatzalah, the Foshis, of saving a life, and I can fulfill the mitzvah of Achnas Eskala, I can do the whole of all in one, in one fell swoop. So he said, but, he said, I had some questions, so I, I laid the matter off until after Mara, when I would have an opportunity to think about it. He said, I began to think about it, and I said to myself, well, wait a minute, the same amount of money, I could take care of the needs of, of a half a dozen Hasidim who are here. And um, and I could still leave a little bit for the needs of, of running our household. Some some very modest sum I could take off for, for that purpose. And I began to struggle with what was the right thing to do. Was the right thing to do is to give everything to this to this one fellow or to take the money and divide it up amongst six Hasidim and uh, take off a little bit for for our own needs. So he said, after a while, he said, I concluded that uh, the right thing to do was to give this fellow all the money. And the, the way in which I concluded that was as follows. He said, as soon as I had the thought, Nahum, you are a steward over this money, my first inclination was, this fellow needs 300 ruble for all of these important needs. Here you have 300 rubles. It's clear you're supposed to give him the money. He said, and, and at that point, I had concluded that that's what I should do. He said, then, once I had made that conclusion and resolved to do it, then all of a sudden I was besieged by all of these questions. He said, the way in which the Yetzer HaTov and the Yetzer Hara work is that the Yetzer HaTov, one's good inclination comes, speaks his peace first and leaves and he says and the Yetzer Hara then comes and tortures you to death he doesn't speak once he speaks repeatedly and he fills your minds with doubts so he said the Yetzer Hatov spoke clearly and left, I didn't hear from him again he said the Yetzer Hara proceeded to torment me for the rest of the day I knew after having reviewed the events of the day that um, it was the Yitzhah Tov which had spoken and consequently I dispensed with the money accordingly um, the Reb um, uh, um reputation amongst Hasidim amongst his peers was uh, was one of uh, a very very deep affection and respect. It said that the uh, the Tildes, who um, if you remember was uh, was a, a person of whose uh, uh, who was who was feared. People not only stood in awe of him, but he was feared because he was a, he was a person of of uh, uh, someone of a tempestuous nature. It was a very critical type of person, 
for which reason the Teldus did not succeed the Balsanto. He, he was his, his disposition was not the the uh, appropriate disposition. The Teldus once exclaimed to his Hasidim, he says, "The world says that Reb Nachum is a tzaddik." So his uh, followers, who were who were accustomed to hearing on occasion some some uh, fairly sharp um, observations from him, waited for the for the rest of this denunciation to fall. So he said, "But the world." doesn't know Reb Nochem. Reb Nochem is not one tzaddik, he is ten tzaddik. He said, usually, he says, a tzaddik takes one characteristic and it becomes the centerpiece of his life. This is something that he works on in which he excels. He says, Reb Nochem, he says, has taken all the midas of the spheres and he says, and he excels them in them all. Um, according to the, the wishes of the the uh, the Rebbe of Mizrich, Reb Nochem became a Magid. He uh, spent a great deal of time traveling from uh, place to place. Now I'm beginning to see where I get this. Um, <laughs> traveling from place to place, uh, speaking. Divrei Kivushim. He would uh, he would go from place to place to uh, to inspire, to um, encourage, to be mechazik. The people who lived in uh, not only in the larger communities, but but even more important, the people who lived in, in many of the smaller communities and the uh, the towns and villages uh, throughout Russia. And um, and uh, simultaneously to to raise funds, another thing that comes from a, a source of. Uh, uh, which is right at home here, and, and to raise funds for Pidyan Shavuim. Um, he uh, used to, to do a, a, a lot of charity work, um, liberating people who had been taken hostage and prisoner by by the uh, authorities of those days who were constantly extorting the Jewish population. For large sums of money by by taking Jews as prisoner, so he uh, he would circulate from place to place and he would collect money and he would fulfill this mitzvah and and, uh, and throughout his travels he um, he would do his magidus which uh, which in which he he would speak to these different communities and uh, according to the derech of the Baal Shem Tov, you remember that one of the complaints of the Baal Shem Tov to the magidim who were uh, commonplace in, in the time of the Baal Shem and before the Baal Shem Tov was that these people would go from community to community and admonish and rebuke people in, in very severe and very harsh and very excoriating terms. Would, they would tear them apart. The Baal Shem Tov, um, uh, when, when, one of the things that uh, he lashed out at was the fact that these people were, were taking Jews who were already crushed in spirit to who were already depressed by the economy and the persecution and the pogroms and uh, and, and so many other things, and um, and persecuting them and oppressing them even more, and, and, and that uh, that what Jews needed was was encouragement. They needed to be warmed. They needed to be inspired. They needed to to to, to learn how to, how to how to serve the Almighty joyfully. 
So the Rimnachim uh, was one of the one of the, the earliest of the Magidim who personified the teachings of Baal Shem Tov to do all of this with a great deal of, of gentleness and kindness and um, and um, bring about change rather than in, in with uh, with harsh instruments to do so in, in some very gentle ways. Um, he would come into a community and he would announce, uh, "I'm uh, I'm a salesman. I'm." Uh, and those those days they would have traveling you know, people who would go with their wares from community to community, selling all kinds of little items. And, and he would say, "I'm here." He says, "I if you want." He says, "I have needles for sale. If you want, I have perfume." He said, "People who need to be prodded." He says, "I have some needles." He says, "People who need." to feel uh, uplifted. I have some perfume, I have some fragrance for them. He said, I also have all kinds of healing balms, all kinds of, 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 uh, of um, medicines for the, the soul and those people who need some divine intervention. I can, I can do that. I mean, it, it, some of this, when, when he would get up in, in the town square and announce the many things that he was capable of doing, sounded very pretentious and when someone once questioned him about it, he said look he said there's a precedent in the Torah he said in the Torah you have that when Jews would go to war that the, there would be an announcement everybody or anybody who had just gotten married or betrothed should return from the battlefront anybody who just built a house but has not yet had an opportunity to live in it should just return from the, should return from the battlefront anybody who's just planted a vineyard but has not enjoyed the vineyard yet for a year has to return from the battlefront and then there would be the announcement anybody who's committed any averos anybody who's committed sins um, should return from the battlefront and, and, and our sages tell us that in reality the, the, the one category that the the Torah is really worried about is that people who were who were not innocent of wrongdoing, the people who had, who had committed wrongs, that that they would be carrying their wrongdoing to, into battle, and that they would therefore, since it's a it's a, it's a time of, of uh, danger, the heavenly uh, powers would not protect them; they would become casualties of war. So, in reality, the most important announcement there was: let whoever is um, is guilty of wrongdoing return from war, but <coughs> then it would be public humiliation because anybody who would return from war, everybody would say, "Uh huh, he must have done something." So, in order to spare them embarrassment, so the Almighty provided that there would be all kinds of categories of some very innocent, legitimate things, so that if somebody saw somebody going back from the war effort, they would say, well, he must have just added a room to his house, he must have just uh, planted a, a new section of his vineyard, or maybe he's betrothed. In other words, no one would, would, would be embarrassed to return from the battlefront because of what was really there. So he said, in reality, he says, I want people to come and pour their hearts out, hearts out because they, they they look to be reinstated. They want they want to restore their, their spiritual integrity. He says, but if that's all I do, then anybody who comes to me is immediately going to be singled out. Aha, this guy probably did something. That's why he's going to the to the Rebbe. So he says, so I, I tell people that I, I, I'm also capable of intervening with the Almighty on their behalf so that they can have healing and that they can have uh, 
And that if uh, if they don't have children, that they can be blessed with children. And if their business is bad, that I'll that I'll uh, I'll see to it that their uh, their material fortunes, their financial fortunes, get better. Now that part, by the way, I don't I didn't get that. So. Um, I haven't tried. Okay. Um, and 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 um, uh, Reb became a very beloved figure to uh, the um, to the populace because he he would go from from community to community where his um, uh, his words were. Um, were always uh, accepted uh, with uh, with a great deal of seriousness because he did in fact say them in the kindly and inspiring way in which the Baal Shem Tov had had uh, counseled. Um, he was also a, uh, a uh, according to what's written about him that he was a he was a very uh, spellbinding speaker and. Uh, uh, his um, his words of terror and encouragement were were very um, deeply influential in, in moving people. Uh, it's related that on one occasion he came to a community and learned that adjacent to the community on a um, fairly steep mountain there was a community of Jews who lived and who worked, uh, whatever it was, I think they were in there in the um, they used to cut lumber and um, and that uh, this was a community that was a f- fairly s- small a number a number of Jews who lived there were uh, a few minyanim of, of Jews um, and that they uh, that they had no leadership and so he made his way up the mountain which was uh, apparently no easy feat on his own, and uh, arrived to discover that uh, there was no minion uh, for the public minion in Shul. And when he inquired about that, they told him that uh, that the people in the community were very busy, that there was that there were just uh, there was. Barely a minion around that uh, that had the time to, to engage in public prayer, but that even this um, the the numbers of people who came to the minion would go to to convene in the house of an elderly man who was a person who came to live on this mountain not because he wanted to be there because uh, he had no reason to be there but because he suffered from some sort of a lung disease. And he needed the, the fresh air, which uh, which was um, one of the special features of this this mountain community. So everybody would gather in his house so that he wouldn't have to schlep himself out to shul. And uh, with the exception of Shabbos and Yantar, then everybody would go to shul. Um, when uh, Reb Nachum announced, uh, or, or correctly, uh, um, informed uh, the townspeople who he was, and they knew him by reputation. We got very excited. They began to fight over who would have, who, who was going to have the honor of his, of, um, of being host to him. 
And uh, when finally, when when uh, the matter was settled, and he went to 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 the host's home, he said to the host, uh, uh, "What time is the minion in the morning?" He told him, and he said, "Well, okay, if you don't mind, I would before the davening, I would like to go to the mikvah." So his host began to stammer, and he saw that uh, something wasn't right, and he said, "Well, what's the problem?" So finally, the man blurted out, Rebbe, we don't have a mikveh. And he began to make all kinds of, all kinds of excuses, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a mountain, and it's hard to gather enough, enough water, we don't have access to, to a, to a natural body of water here, we don't have a, a spring here, we would have to dig very deep for it. And he proceeded to recount how, in fact, on, on one occasion they had they had gotten from the neighboring town craftsmen to come in, the contractors to come in, and the, the bid was that it was going to have to cost 300 or something gold pieces for this uh, for this uh, mikveh, and there was nobody. Even if everybody pitched together all of their resources, they they couldn't come up with with um, 20, 25% of that. They just, there, there was no money there. So he said, and, and he proceeded to tell listen, uh, Rabbi, uh, God will have to forgive us. I mean, we have no parnasa. You know how difficult it is in our times. The authorities don't don't let Jews earn a living, so we're constrained to do what we can do. And Ram um, was absolutely beside himself. The following morning at the davening, he announced in the presence of this uh, this elderly affluent gentleman that later on in the day he was going to speak to everyone he wanted everyone to be in show so later on in the day everyone came to show men women children including the the old the old man who was the the town gvir and Reb Nachum got up and proceeded to give a biographical sketch of himself. Uh, the kind of family that he came from, that from the very earliest of times he did um, all of these mitzvahs that he was exposed to learning, that day and night he would learn, and he learned with great diligence, and, uh, and um, that uh, he would... Um, uh, and whenever possible, he would he would teach others and proceeded to talk about all the charity that he had given. It it, it this was a a, um, a, a biography which was um, uh, which was strange for in, in, in a whole variety of ways. Um, not only because it was it was pretty awesome in scope, but because it was it was. It appeared to be an expression of, of some haughtiness and some conceit. I mean, nobody could figure out why somebody would get up in public and and extol his own virtues and achievements, his spiritual achievements, at such great length. Finally, after having concluded this, he said to them, he said, look, he said, I want you all to understand, he says, that I've worked from the day I was born till now very, very hard on achieving all of these things. He said, I am prepared 
to sell my portion in the world to come. Everything that I've earned from all of the things that you just heard, I am prepared to sell. I'm prepared to do it with a legitimate Kenyan, with a, with a contract, he said, to give over all that I have earned in, in eternity. With, uh, with everything that you just heard, this entire spiritual fortune that I have amassed. So, nobody had the audacity to, to, to speak up but the old man. The old man said, Rebbe, I would give a hundred gold pieces for that. And uh, like a seasoned tradesman, a merchant, Rebbe uh, said, I won't sell it for a hundred gold pieces. So they began to, to barter. 150, 200, 225, 250. Finally, said, look, it, it's not going to go for less than 300 gold pieces. And the old man said, Rebbe, I'm considered a very wealthy man. I don't have very much more than 300 gold pieces in my entire fortune. Rebbe said, Take it or leave it. That's it. So, um, great beads of perspiration began to bubble out of the, this old man's forehead, and finally he stood up and said, Rebbe, I'll buy it. Uh, I'll go home, I'll bring it back, and this evening you will have 300 gold pieces. Uh, the elderly man left the the Rabnachim sat down wrote out a contract the old man returned they counted out the coins gave him the the, uh, the contract there was a kioskaf there was a kinyan and everybody surrounded the old man and wished him mazel tov and it was a time of, of enormous joy for the old man and curiously enough, it was also a time of great joy for, for Ibn Nachum. After uh, the old man left, Ibn Nachum turned around and took the entire bag of money and handed it to the uh, leaders of the community and said to them, you called it your, uh, all of your craftsmen from the neighboring town and build yourself a mikvah. You know, you have the money, there's no excuse. There can't be a Jewish community without a mikvah. After uh, the, uh, the, that is the following morning, when Rabbi uh, Nachman was about to leave, one of the townspeople approached him and said to him, Rebbe, we understand that the old man was legitimately besimcham, and he really rejoiced because he had just acquired a, um, an, an indescribably great treasure drove of, of the world to come. But you lost everything that you spent your entire life working for. How could you be in such a state of joy? So he said, I'll tell you the truth. He said, I've always been suspicious that when I I would serve the Almighty that I might have had an ulterior motive. I knew that the Almighty rewards those who serve Him. And I, I, I wanted to serve the Almighty out of the the sincerity of my heart I could never really be completely comfortable with the fact that I was doing it without an ulterior motive he said I realized that now that I had sold my portion in the world to come that um, from here 
after I can serve the Almighty. I don't have to be worried about the fact that there's an ulterior motive because I just I just polished it all off. So Chassidim used to say that Menachem later on said that having um, having made that uh, that declaration that he heard a heavenly echo saying Menachem, <laughs> you didn't lose anything. Your your portion in the world to come is still still intact. Not that the that the old man didn't get what he bargained for, but uh, but the Menachem's selflessness had acquired him a new a new tract. Uh, but this was the uh, uh, this this was the nature of of Rav Nachum's um, service to uh, to the um, the communities and the and the villages of his time. It was a, it, it was someone who came uh, with uh, a, a deep concern for their physical well-being and uh, for their spiritual well-being even if it meant uh, giving everything sacrificing everything that he was and everything that he had for that purpose one of the things that uh, that's also related is kind of a just a kind of an interesting anecdote about the the ways in which the Ramnachum was was gifted in that he saw things that weren't generally um, apparent to uh, people who, who as, as they say in Yiddish, have fleshige oigen, people who, whose, whose eyes are very mortal. He, he saw things that were discernible only if you can see them in a, from a, a perspective which is a very spiritual perspective. And there are numerous such stories. There's uh, one is um, an anecdote which I believe I've shared with you. He was, he was uh, one of the Hasidic greats. Was a man who was known as Reb Moshe Savrano. His father, Reb Shimon Shleimer, was once host to Reb Nachum. And and Reb Nachum had specifically requested that they put a very large candle in his room because um, a lantern, whatever it was in his room, so that he would be able to uh, to study late into the night on Shabbos. Um, when Reb Nachum came home, from the tefillahs and they have to, they had the tish after the tish he went into his room and they heard a large noise big noise and uh, they came in to find that Reb Nachum was sprawled out on the floor and they picked him up and they said to him what happened he said well it, uh, apparently uh, you weren't successful in getting a, a large candle and the room was dark and I stumbled over something and I fell and they said to him, Rebbe, the, the room is as bright as, as daylight here. So he said, the room is dark. And he said, Rebbe, there's a candle here, it's burning. So Reb Nachum was, was forced to conclude that there was something going on here. So he said, okay, do me a favor, just make an inquiry whether somebody fooled around with this candle. It turned out that uh, after they left for Shul, it was Ben Hashemash, it was twilight, and uh, there was a um, non-Jewish 
There's some non-Jewish help in the house who noticed that the candle had gone out. Had gone out. So they went over and uh, lit the candle. Now nobody knew about it that uh, that the candle had gone out and that uh, that the this um, this worker there had uh, had relit the candle. But Reb um, Nachman, they told him the story. Reb Nachman says, "Okay, now I understand." He said it was it was a uh, something that was that was lit on Shabbos, and he said, "My my eyes don't, I I I can't see by by a light which came into being in a way which which is inconsistent with the Shabbos." So he uh, had that kind of. And there are numerous such incidents, but the incident which, which um, is a kind of a beautiful incident, is one whenever Reb Nachum would come to a town, the very first thing that he would do would be to send for the sheikhet, and he would ask the sheikhet to bring him the chalav. The chalav is the, the knife of the shechita, the, the one that's used, and of course that knife has to be has to be polished to a, a absolute perfection. There can't be a single uh, the, uh, the tiniest kind of nick in the knife would, would render the shechita treif. So it's an it's an art, and it's and, and it can even even when you master the craft, it has to be done with uh, with a really God fearing uh, attention, because then you're talking about an attention which is which is uh, very exquisite here. So that's the first thing that he would do. He would send for the the uh, the shochet that he would examine the knife, and if it didn't meet his specifications, he would then uh, very gently, very firmly, he would um, admonish the the shochet to um, approach this work with a, with a proper reverence. In one occasion, he came into town, and as he came into town, he inquired about a place where he might stay. Um, as it was, the fellow who he made this inquiry of in the streets of this town was the Shechet. He immediately recognized or understood that this was the famous Reb Nochem, and he knew Reb Nochem's practice, that his custom was to send for the Shechet. So after he directed Reb Nochem to a place where he might stay, he immediately went home to prepare his challah so that when the, the, uh, the summons would come to appear before Reb Nochem, that he would be ready. He came into the house, took the, the chalav out, and was about to, to add some, some additional polish to it, and he stopped himself, and he said, wait a minute, why am I doing this? He said, because Reb Nachum is going to check my chalav. He said, if, if someone were to come now with a chicken to shecht, he said, I would use this chalav as it is, because I believe that this chalav is acceptable. So he said to himself, if it's good enough for God, it's going to be good enough for Reb Nachum. And he put away his sharp stone, put it back into its holder, and waited. Shortly thereafter, there was a knock at the door. Reb Nachum Chernobyl was here, and he asked if you would please appear and bring your chalav with you. So he um, he went with uh, with some trepidation. He went uh, to... Um, 
appear before Reb Nachum. Reb Nachum was in the middle of davening when he arrived, so he waited patiently. When Reb Nachum concluded the davening, he turned around, and of course there were the, the people of the community were standing around Reb Nachman, Reb Nachman, and they were fully expecting that um, they would now have an opportunity to see to see whether they were really eating kosher all of this time. So. The, the, the way in which this is usually done is that you take the, the, the chalav and you run your fingernail up and down the, uh, the surface of the sides of the, of the chalav and, and you, you know, if, if there's any kind of a, a roughness or any kind of a nick in the knife, your nail will c- catch on it. So that's, it. so that's the way it's usually done. So, Rambam stretched out his hand, the, the um, Shochet put the chalav, handled the chalav. Ram Nachum looked at it for just a, a second and he said, you know, he said, I'm not going to examine this chalav. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for Ram <laughs> And he handed it, handed it back to him. And what they said was one of the few times that Ram Nachum ate from somebody's shechita. That he was, that generally speaking, he didn't eat, didn't eat other, other, he didn't eat the shechita, but this was one of the few times that that he did so. One of the, one of the more humorous, but the nonetheless, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the stories which is associated with Rav Nochem, which he, he was fond of telling, was the time when during his travels, he came to a, um, he came to a farm. And these were Jews who, uh, who's a, were the simplest of, of Jews. They were basically illiterate, um, uh, if they weren't illiterate, they certainly weren't lettered Jews. And Reb um, Nachum um, wasn't going to stay there more than than just overnight. In the middle of the night, the um, the farmer is woken out of a deep sleep by sounds of of sobbing, crying, and. He uh, gets out of bed and follows the sound, and he finds Reb Nachum is sitting on the on the ground with ashes on his head, and he's crying and saying he's murmuring things. So he says to him, "Rebbe, what's wrong?" So Reb Nachum says to him, "Nothing's wrong. I'm I'm doing tikkun chatzos. There's a, 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 a special service which uh, people who are." Of saintly disposition, or, uh, would would do regularly, and that's that. Right around midnight, that you mourn for the the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of Claudius, Yisrael, the exile of the divine presence from from the Beis Hamikdash, and so on, and you pray for the redemption. And he uh, he, he said he was weeping about. Uh, about the Tsaras of Klal Yisrael, the Tsaras Ashkina. Well, this farm, this farmer was very, very taken with this description. He, he this, uh, was very moved by it. So he said, "Well, Rebbe, so how do, you, how does, how do you stop this?" So he said, "Well, I pray that Mashiach will come, and will redeem Klal Yisrael, and will take all of us back to Jerusalem, and we'll, we'll once again." The Almighty's presence will dwell in the Beis Hamikdash. Anyway, 
he's encouraged by that, and he, the farmer goes back to bed, and uh, his wife says to him, uh, what was that all about? So he patiently repeats everything that he just learned. So she says to Meshuginach, she says to her husband, quick, run back and tell the Rebbe to cut it out. He said, you realize, he said, we just paid off the mortgage on this house. He said, we finally own all of our, our, our own cows and our own geese and chickens. He said, and now this guy's going to pray for Mashiach and he's going to come, he's going to take us to Jerusalem. We'll have to start our lives all over again. So the farmer said, oh, didn't occur to me. Gets off bed, gets out of bed, goes back to, to Abnachim. Abnachim is sitting there lamenting the destruction and this whole business. And he says to Rebbe, stop. She said, what's wrong? He said, we can't afford this, Mashiach. He said, it's going to wreck everything. He says, we finally, he says, we've paid off all of our debts. We finally own this farm and all of our cows and all of our chickens and geese and, and stuff. He says, and, and, and Mashiach is going to come now. We have to start our lives all over again. So Abnachim says to him, my dear friend, he said, you don't understand. He said, what good does your house when you're in your farm and your, your cows and your chicken and your geese when you're paid off? He said, we're living in cultures that hate us. We're surrounded by, by people who, who are violent. He said, well, there are constant pogroms. He says, the Kazakim, he says, the Kazakhs are always coming through and doing terrible things to us. He says, of course we need Mashiach. The farmer said, oh, you're right, Rebbe. So, goes back and says to his wife, no, I couldn't stop him because we really do need Mashiach. And proceeds to, re- to explain everything that the Rebbe just told. A few minutes later, the farmer's back. He said, Rebbe, my wife said that you can pray for Mashiach, but you should pray that Mashiach should take the Cossacks to Jerusalem <laughs> and leave us alone over here because we finally we finally made it here. So this this is one of the one of the um, anecdotes that the Nachum used to used to repeat about the the the, the spiritual um, poverty of um, of the people that he would that he would find during his travels. Um, I'm going to close with one more sipul, and next time we meet, I'm going to I'm going to tell you some of the tailors that is some of the commentaries which I I believe make up some of the most important contributions of uh, the Merinaim to um, to Hasidus. That is that that make up uh, in a, in a very unique way. Um, a uh, particular thrust. Uh, Reb Nochem passed away in um, in Tov Kuf Ninches, which is 1798, by the, in the Common Era. <coughs> and um, he left his, he was survived by his wife, by two sons, Reb Moshe and Reb Mordechai. Reb Mordechai was the one who became the Chernobyl Magi. Um, uh, who in turn was uh, the Chernobyl Magid was the father of of, uh, of all of these these different branches of Torskis and one daughter uh, this daughter uh, was married to um, uh, the scion of a, um, a very distinguished family and uh, they in turn 
this daughter, whose name was Malkala, had a daughter whose name was Chava. Chava, the only reason I'm mentioning this will become clear in a minute, this Chava was married to Reb Shalom Shachna of Prabisch, who was the um, the grandson of the Mizritcha Magid, the son of the, the Malach, it's called the Bavum Malach, <coughs> and uh, the father of the Rebbe of Rizhin. And the um, the personality of, of this Reb Shalom Shachna was, was much affected by uh, his um, his presence with his grandfather by marriage, Reb Nochem. In any event, so Reb Nochem was survived by these two sons and and this this daughter. Although I'm not, I'm, I suspect that uh, the daughter may have predeceased them. After Reb Nochem's passing, um, their state of of poverty or impoverishment went from bad to worse. They were destitute in in ways that uh, defied description. And and his rebbetzin, Reb Nochem's rebbetzin, began to travel around to the tzaddiki hader, to the the um, giants of the generation who were familiar and who respected uh, Reb Nochem to uh, solicit some some uh, financial assistance. She came to Reb Baruch. The uh, Reb Baruch was the, <coughs> the grandson of the Baal Shem HaKadosh, Reb Baruch of Mezbish. A very well-known, fairly uh, um, a, a very colorful personality. Again, a, a person who uh, was held in, in in great reverence and also uh, with... Uh, was, what? Of Reb Baruch. Um, and uh, who was um, uh, and, and who was was feared in many circles because he was a, a person who was a balak pada. I mean, they, his uh, he would not abide a, any kind of uh, affront. Um, so she came to Rebbech for for some assistance. My father told me this story. Um, and it's a story which is the, the story is repeated in um, in a variety of different ways and different nuschayos and there are in fact there's in fact one nuschay in which it's attributed to the zloch of a magid but um, my father told me he heard it from from uh, from his father who in turn heard it from his grandfather so it's it's uh, it's a story which has some very very strong roots in the family uh, and and um, I'm uh, I'm somewhat fortunate over here that I'm repeating this story in the absence of my Rebbetzin because she doesn't like the story. Um, so she came into Rebbech, Reb Nachum's Rebbetzin, came into Rebbech and explained the purpose of her visit. And Rebbech said to her, there's no question about the fact that uh, I will do my best to see to it that uh, that you leave here with some very strong support, he said. Please do me a favor. You, you know, you were your your husband's companion for so many years. Uh, tell me some some interesting um, insights into your great and revered husband. 
So she sat there for a few minutes, quietly, and she finally said to him, Rebbe, I, I know hundreds of, of inspiring things to tell you, but curiously, I can't remember anything. So this must be a, a divine signal that whatever it is that you're not supposed to know about these things. So Rebaruch um, pleaded with her that she should try, she should concentrate, that he was very, very anxious to know, and and um, she sat there again for a period of time. She finally said, um, I'm sorry, I, my mind is blank. And she got up to leave, and she got as far as the door, and she stopped abruptly, and she came back, and she said, Rebbe, I just remembered one story, so I'll tell you just this one. She said, my husband had tefillin, the parshias of which, in other words, in tefillin there are, there's parchment, and um, the, uh, the chapters which are written into, into this parchment have to be very, very carefully written by someone who is skilled as a scribe, and it's, usually it's not only the fact that you, you, you shape the letters right, but the, the, the piety of the scribe has a great deal to do with how the parshas themselves are are valued. So he said, my husband had tefillin, the parshas of which were written by the scribe Rebbefraim Sefer. Rebbefraim Sefer was the... the uh, during his lifetime, had written a Sefer Torah, I believe, and some mezuzahs and a number of pairs of parashas for tefillin. There were a few and far between. And uh, the Baal Shem HaKodesh himself had tefillin, the parashas of which had been written by the by uh, Rebbe Ephraim Sefer. And the Baal Shem Tov said that from his view of history, that uh, Rebbe Ephraim was in, in the third rung. He said first was Rebbe Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, he said, first was Moshe Rabbeinu Sefer, then there was Ezra HaSefer, and then he says, was Rebbe Sefer. He says, that's where, that's where the, that was the stature of, of this Rebbe Ephraim Sefer, that he was, he was the, the third in, in order of, of the scribes of, of history. Um, so he said, my husband was fortunate enough to have a pair of tefillin, the parchment of which, the parshas of which were written by Rebbe Ephraim Sofer. So he said there was one very well-to-do, um, very affluent person who lived in Chernobyl who uh, wanted in the, in the worst way to, to uh, have these tefillin and offered my husband 50 ruble for her, for the film. 50 ruble would have, could have supported them for a couple of years. So he said, she said, my husband refused to part with these film. They were his most precious belonging. She said, and I have to tell you that there were times when we didn't have bread to eat, and I pleaded with 
my husband to sell the tefillin. And he would explain to me that that uh, we couldn't part those tefillin. He says, there were some very cold days in winter. He says, and we suffered for lack of heat and, and protection, he said. And I pleaded with my husband to sell the tefillin. My husband didn't want to sell the tefillin. She said, and that's how the, the years went. I would I would come from time to time and plead with my husband to sell the tefillin. And he would always very very politely but very firmly refused to part with those films. She said, finally, on one occasion, he assured her that when uh, Malkala would be of age, that she would need a, a dowry, that he might be persuaded to part with the film to, for Malkala's sake. In any event, she said, he did not part with his film, and then came one year, it was Erev Sukkot. And ordinarily, it, it, it wasn't like we have today. They, it was very, very difficult to get a, a lulav and esri, which were kosher. She said, this year you couldn't come by it for all the tea in China. Erev Sukkot, a resplendent carriage, went through the town square and sitting on the seat of this carriage was a man who was obviously a very well-to-do person and he was holding a lulav and esrik. So he said, she said, my husband ran out after that wagon and stopped the wagon and inquired of the person in the wagon whether or not he could be convinced to stay in Chernobyl over Sukkot so that then everybody in town would have a, a lulav and esrik. So he said, no. There's no way, because he was traveling, he had to, he had to be someplace for circus. So he says, so my husband said to him, maybe he would part with this Lulav So the man said to him, I might, but it would be for a fortune. So he said, uh, how much is a fortune? He said to him, 50 rules. He said, wait here, I'll bring you the money. So he said, so my husband ran home, took the film, ran over to the to this home of this very well-to-do guy, sold the film, took the 50 ruble, and bought the Lula Vanessa. So she said, I came home, and I take one look at my husband, and I knew he was very depressed about the fact that he was going to have a circus without a Lula Vanessa, and he was radiant. He was beaming. So I immediately became suspicious. I said to him, What's all of this excitement about? So he, he said, you won't believe it. I I have a little of an asking for you. So she said, I began to suspect that what had really happened, but I needed to find out. So I said to him, and where did you get a little of an asterisk? Nobody in town has a little of an asterisk. So he said, well, there was this guy. He was driving through town, and I saw him, and I ran out. And I was able to negotiate with him to buy the Lulunesque. He said, how much did it cost? So he said, 50 rubles. So she said to him, wait, let me guess. You sold the film. So he said, right. He said, I don't need the film till after. I got a whole, whole week. And meanwhile, I got a mitzvah. I got to perform tomorrow. And he said, then after Yandav, I'll get a plane for it. Oh, no, so. So she said, I have to tell you, Rebbe, she says, she says, all the years of deprivation and suffering 
just like paraded in front of my eyes. And I, I lost control. And I said to him, where is it? So, innocently, he pointed to the cabinet where the... So she says, I went over and I took the asterisk and I smashed it on the ground. So she says, so my husband said to me, well, he said, I don't have the tome. And now I don't have an asterisk for Yontif. So he said, I know that the Baldova, the Yetzahara, the evil inclination, would like that I should have no shalom bias, that there should be no peace between us. So he said, I'm, I'm not about to concede my uh, the peace between us to the, to the Baldova. He's, she said, and with that, he went back to what he was doing as though nothing had happened. Rebarach, who, who, who had a disposition that was stormy disposition, said to her, I understand now why you had to tell me just that story. said to her, and I must tell you that as difficult as your life was, I understand why he didn't want to sell those two. And I must also tell you that I understand why he sold the film for the Esri. He said, but I can't understand how he had such such marvelous self-control, such restraint, and such presence that he did not lose his temper even a little bit. Um... I'm certain that that some of you um, wives out there will, like my Rebetzin, appreciate the, the Rebetzin's um, perspective over here, and, and maybe you don't like the story either. But um, it uh, it does uh, offer yet another another facet of this multi-faceted. Um, saintly individual who was this uh, one of the the earliest and uh, one of the uh, most powerful beacons of the Hasidic movement yeah my uh, my father blessed memory had these film um, they came back and I'm not even sure how they got back into the family but my father inherited them from my grandfather who in turn inherited them from the Chikasa um who had apparently gotten them. Uh, these film, I must tell you, these film are now, um, must be uh, probably four centuries old. And uh, my brother had them examined by a, by a scribe just because he had to make new batim for them, which was in itself, because they're huge, precious. So they had to make special new batim. They don't make the, the closures for them. It's a very uncommon size, so he had new molds, new everything. Uh, but he had the parshas examined. He was supposed to have the parshas examined uh, periodically, and they're as though they were written yesterday. That uh, I mean, that's a very, very unusual kind of thing. Where are they? Now? 